Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open it to the book of John. John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 today. John 18, 1 through 11. John 18, 1 1 through 11. We live in a culture that's filled with stories of heroism. A lot of times, you know, you see that in the movies and TV shows and things. A world filled with heroism, but sometimes the heroism is turned into tragedy. You know, a lot of times you may see this in a movie or a TV show. Like I said, uh, say someone is in, in danger and then you have the hero who will sometimes dive in front and take the bullet, so to speak, sometimes literally even uh, for, a, for another character. And so that hero is heroic, and yet they, they die. They pass away. And so heroism is immediately met with tragedy. You know, one movie that comes to mind where heroism turns to tragedy is the movie Saving Private Ryan. Some of you guys have seen that movie where it's a World War II film where one man's life is the one that they're going to save. And this whole company of individuals are going to rescue this guy, Private Ryan. But men th- that run into rescue to save this one soldier are only met with the tragedy of the deaths of many of them and so yes they're great heroes and yet their heroism is met with extreme tragedy now the thing about these scenarios is that yes they're heroic but the lives of the heroes are taken from them all right sort of willingly but really it's a tragedy it's like they backed them backed into a corner where they have to die in order to be the savior now, what we see in those examples is sort of a last resort courage. Does that make sense? It's a last resort courage. Now, the reason I say that is because I think that sometimes it's tempting to think of the arrest and the murder of Jesus in this way, as a last resort courage. But those are really not the greatest examples of what we see in the gospel. Jesus wasn't the victim of the schemes of Satan. He wasn't a savior that was pushed into unwilling duty for the greater good. It wasn't as if the father said, well, son, we're backed into a corner. We need you to go and handle business. That's not the story of the gospel. John's emphasis of the passion narrative that we're going to begin tonight or this morning is that Jesus did not have his life taken from him, but he sovereignly and willingly gave his life to ransom the captive. Okay. He wasn't backed into a corner where he was out of his control. He wasn't hopelessly courageous. No, he was a willing, sovereign savior, giving his life as a ransom for the captive. The cross wasn't a last resort that God was forced into. It was the brutal yet sovereign design of a God who loves sinners. Sovereignty, in control. I want to see this together in John 18, all right? So let's look at it. John 18, verses 1 through 11. This is what the Word says. It should be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy of the Word. But we're going to hope you do. We're going we're to walk through it together. John 18, 1-11 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers and, uh, from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said, uh, said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? 
And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the beginning of the next major section of the book of John. And this is obviously the climax of the story, right? That Jesus' descent is now beginning into his brutal and tragedy of a murder. What we've seen in the past several weeks, and actually not just weeks, but months, is the beginning of this farewell discourse that leads to the end of its farewell discourse at the high priestly prayer. It began in chapter 13, it ended at the end of chapter 17. That's a long time, you guys. We were, we were in the farewell discourse for quite a long time. A lot of things happened, you know, I'll, I'll summarize a few of them. They, they had the last supper, uh, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, his betrayal was foretold in those moments. He said, Judas is going to betray me, Judas got up out of there, he ran out. Jesus then tells his disciples, hey, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Where I am, you may be also. And so he strengthens them and he encourages them because his disciples were going on a mission without him. And yet, in some ways, they were going on a mission with him. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you. I'll send another, a helper, my spirit of God. And then he goes and prays this high priestly prayer for his disciples to be kept, to be guarded by God, to be staying in God's will for God's glory. The big theme that I want you guys to understand is that such a farewell discourse, something that is so oriented on saying goodbye, what that does is it necessitates something. And that's the fact that Jesus knew he was saying goodbye. Think about it for a second. A farewell discourse means that he knows that he's about to be betrayed. How would he know that if he wasn't in control of the situation? So he begins this farewell discourse with a full knowledge of the fact that his life is being laid down as part of God's divine plan. It's the big theme here. And so in light of that, if you're taking notes today, this is going to be our structure. <clears throat> Two ways that Christ was at work in his own arrest. That's a weird phrase. I'm going to say it again. Two ways that Christ was at work in his own arrest. Number one. It's faithful substitution. And I put in parentheses long term because it's a big plan that's been unfolding for a long, long time. Two ways Christ was at work in his own arrest, faithful substitution. The reason that's a weird phrase, Christ at work in his own arrest, is because I don't know if you ever like met someone or maybe, God forbid, you have been arrested. Uh, but if you know someone or maybe even seen on the TV or movies someone be arrested, they're not really the one in control, right? They're caught in a bad situation and so it's lacking their control they are at the mercy of the officer that is arresting them but that is exactly what's not happening in scripture right the gospel's not like that jesus is the one in control of these circumstances and so we see that he is at work in his faithful substitution as i said it's the beginning of a long narrative of jesus's arrest his persecution his trial and then later his crucifixion and his resurrection now 
all of the gospel authors intend to emphasize different aspects of the story, okay? Now, I'm going to use this word that you may have heard before, maybe not. The word is synoptic. There are three gospels that are the synoptic gospels. That prefix S-Y-N, synoptic, means same. So the word synonym means similar definition. The synoptic gospels are similar. They're, they're sort of the same. You probably know which ones I'm talking about. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're a little bit the same. They tell stories similarly. Even the content of them is very close. They're very near one another. But there's one gospel that is not one of the synoptics. It starts in a very different way. It doesn't even start at the beginning of Jesus' life. And that's the book of John. How did the book of John begin? It didn't begin with the genealogy of Jesus, like Matthew. It didn't begin with the birth narrative, like Mark or like Luke. It began with saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the word was God. That's a very abstract way to begin a book, isn't it? Especially one that's supposed to be chronicling a life. And so I want you guys to understand, the synoptic gospels are very similar to one another, but John is different. Matthew was, and I'm going to give you guys this, a little bit of a lesson real quick, okay? Matthew was different than the other ones. And this is the way that Matthew is written. It's written for Jewish Christians. Matthew, being a Jewish man, was writing a letter to Jewish Christians, the gospel, in order to bridge the gap from the Old Testament law and the prophets to how Jesus puts it all together. And so, sort of the tone of Matthew is, hey guys, don't stop being Jews. Jesus made our Jewish tradition make sense. In this way, and I'll illustrate each of them. It's kind of like uh, a movie that you rewatch, and then you look at the things that in, the, in, the, in the movie at the beginning and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Oh, okay, now it's starting to click. Matthew's like that. He's talking to a Jewish audience and saying, listen, Jesus makes it all click. And so you're rewatching the movie and it's all coming together. Mark is different than that. Mark reads the most like a story for the purpose of the way that we would phrase it of going viral. All right. Mark's wanting his book to go viral. It's exciting with rapid action. The word that stands out if you go and read the book of John in one sitting, he uses the word immediately tons and tons of times. The reason why is because that word pushes forward the excited, excited nature of the book. He's saying, and then immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. It's to be exciting, rapid action. What he's saying is, this is what Jesus did, and he did this too, and he did this too. And then he closes his book with saying, he was a hero, a suffering servant, um, an amazing man. In that way, I sort of compare the book of Mark to like one of those superhero movies, a Marvel movie, where it's really exciting, and maybe the story is not artistically woven together, but it's exciting. It's meant to excite the reader. That's the book of Mark. And Luke is different than that. It's written for the non-Jew. Luke wrote to a non-Jewish man, and he himself was a non-Jewish man, which means it was really for all audiences. It was historically very accurate. It was thorough. It's even educational in a lot of ways. He hits on the life and the ministry of Jesus, and he wants to get very interwoven with the details. In that way, while Matthew was like a, a movie that clicks when you rewatch it, Mark was more like a Marvel movie. Luke is, to me, more like a documentary. He wants you to understand all of the details. And yet John is very different than those. The synoptics are mostly the same. And yet they have a different intention. But John is so different. Here's John's intention in his writing. Very simple. It started with verse 1 of John. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now we've been in John for a long time. Almost, I think a year and a half. That's a long time, right? Hasn't that been obvious I mean, you've heard me say many times, Jesus is God, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ. That's what John is wanting us to understand. He's different than the synoptics, but what he wants the reader to understand is that Jesus is God and you must believe. His book, if it's a movie, it's intended by the end of it to make you say, wow. 
blows me away. It's a blockbuster. Now, all that being said, insert what in this passage is the main thing. And that is the sovereignty that Jesus has over his own life and death. It's a long-term gospel plan. And understanding that helps this passage to make more sense. That's why I started with that, okay? So look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, okay, so he's talking about that entire farewell discourse. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, this garden is the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that to be true because of the Synoptic Gospels. It's at the foot of the Mount of Olives in a little valley where there is oftentimes a stream. This, this valley was called Kidron, the Kidron Valley. It says that he entered into this garden, meaning that it was probably a gated garden. It was, it was secluded. It was kept. It was a frequent place for Jesus and his disciples to hang out, which we see next in verses 2 and 3. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Like I said, it was a frequent hangout. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, that's Roman soldiers, okay, a big group of Roman guards, and some officers, that's temple officers, Jewish guys, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, they all went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now think about the context, context for just a moment. Jesus has garnered a massive following. Like I said, we've already been through 17 chapters of Jesus' life in the book of John. And you know more than just what's in this book, right? Jesus has garnered this massive following. We saw even that he had a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. He garnered massive attention. Jewish leaders even began to be afraid of Jesus because he may be bringing an uprising. Maybe he's a rebel. He's a, he's a rebel leader and so he's going to bring an uprising. We saw that in John chapter 11, specifically in verse 15 when the Jewish leaders were saying, hey, if this thing gets out of control, Rome's going to step in and then it's going to be all of our heads. And so what their determination was, him for us. We need to get rid of this guy so that we can be saved. Which there's a lot of irony in that statement. We got into that before. And so they sought to arrest what many people believe to be, rightly, the Messiah. Now don't you understand that if he is the Messiah, and if he has a, a following this way, there would absolutely be massive resistance by his followers. And so they needed to be methodical, which is why they decided, hey, we're going to need to bring both Roman guards and our Jewish guards and soldiers. So consider the time and the place of Jesus' arrest. It happens at night, right? We already know that because they have left this upper room in the middle of the evening which Jesus gets arrested. It's nighttime, meaning it's dark. Why is that important? Because it's low profile. It won't be all eyes on them. It'll be low profile. It happened at Gethsemane, which I don't expect you to know where that is. But in relation to the city of Jerusalem, the city walls, it was on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Because since it's on the outskirts of the city, it's secluded. It's away from the crowds. It's low profile. And so what I want you to understand is that they brought lanterns and torches in case of of violence or, or an outcry, but they really expected this to be handling business as usual. It's easy, which Judas thought was his idea. Certainly God was sovereign over that. But they brought lanterns and torches in case the disciples were to hide in the corners of the garden. They brought weapons in case they did run into some sort of physical resistance. But again, the irony of this is that Jesus was ready, right? He was ready to and, and willing to give himself to them peacefully. They didn't catch him in some clever ruse. He chose Gethsemane. 
He chose a peaceful laying down of his life, knowing that Judas would lead them to him. God, he's sovereign. He's sovereign. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? We'll pause there for just a moment. There's a, there's a subtle but amazing detail in this passage. He knew the extent, remember sovereign, right? In control, he knows all things. He knew the extent of his beating. He knew the extent of the scoffing that he would endure. But he loved his own so much that he willingly entered into suffering for his glory and their good. Notice it says that he came forward. It may say in your translation, he came out. What that means is that he maybe even left the garden. It means that he met them. Right? It reminds me of, of, this is a silly example of this, but have you guys ever seen the movie The Sandlot? Like I said, I'm a big movie guy. I love the movie The Sandlot, which I look back at it now and I'm like, my parents let me watch this when I was like six years old? What were they thinking, right? Some of these kids have terrible mouths. And anyway, so in the movie The Sandlot, there's these guys from another team that come and they're trying to intimidate them. And so they pull up on their turf and they have this like, Again, terrible thing for a six or seven year old to watch, but they have this like shouting match at each other where they're insulting each other and calling each other horrible, nasty names. Kids, right? Uh, They're calling each other nasty, nasty names. But it's interesting, like if you watch that scene, they're not scared of them. The big kid, the catcher, the ham was his name, appropriately named. He he walks out as their leader and kind of meets them out there. That's kind of what's happening in this passage. Is that Jesus isn't cowering. He's not afraid. It says that he came forward to them. There's a willingness here. Jesus wasn't trapped. He knew it was coming. And so he met them out there. He approached his own destiny willingly. So they ask, or he asked this question, whom do you seek? Which is obviously a redundant question, but he asked it for a reason. He knows who they seek, and yet he asked it for a reason. The reason he asked that question is so that he could respond the way that he does. I am he. Okay, and we'll get to that. Look at verses 5 and 6. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, look at what happened. They drew back. They fell to the ground. Now, in English, that phrase, I am he, it it shouldn't stand out. It, It isn't really a big deal. It's a very small little phrase. But the literal translation, I am he, is, can be I am he, or it is I, or I am, I am him. But in their translation, or in the Greek, it says, ego eimi, which is, I am. I am he, I am. Which, if you're an understander of, of the Bible as a whole, that phrase should sort of kind of stand out. Especially if you've been at Spring Hill for the past year and a half, where we've had seven I am statements where Jesus has very clearly made statements of his own divinity. It is I, certainly. But based on what happened, it causes us to sort of raise our eyebrows a bit. I am. It's used for the seven I am statements, their divinity claims. In John we see this. And it's used as the divine name throughout their own Greek Old Testament. All right? If you go back and read their own Old Testament, which was their Bible, in their language, in Greek... Moses and Yahweh, you think about the burning bush narrative in Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, in Exodus, where Yahweh's talking to Moses through this burning bush, God's talking to him, and Moses said, listen, I'm just, I'm just a little guy, what am I supposed to tell your, your people when you're telling me to go and get them and bring them out of Egypt, what am I supposed to say? And he says, you tell them that I am sent you, it's me, it's God, 
You tell him, I am. You tell him, ego a me, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, sent you. It's the same little phrase for God's self-identification in Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through Isaiah 55. God loves this phrase. Even earlier in chapter 8 of John, verses 58 and 59, Jesus identifies himself as divine. God, I am. And likely, several of these same officials even picked up stones to stone him. They knew that this phrase can be translated, it is I. But clearly in this passage, there's a little bit more going on here because of what occurs in verse 6. I'm going to read that again. When he said to them, I am he, me," they drew back and they fell to the ground. That's weird, right? They drew back and they fell to the ground. Which begs to the question, what in the world just happened? How did that happen? What did that look like? It really makes you wonder. Was there some divine blast or a, or a quake sent by God? Or maybe, they, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it wasn't some divine movement. Maybe it was uh, that they were so taken back by such a blasphemy statement, which in their opinion it would have been blasphemy. Maybe they were so taken back that they were literally recoiled and knocked to the ground because they were so stunned that he would make such an aggressive remark in the face of his own captors. To be honest with you, I have no idea. I don't know how it occurred. I did a lot of studying on this. Uh, and I read several different opinions, and none of them, to be honest with you, were convincing enough to say definitively. But the how of why this occurred is far less important than the why that this occurred. How did it occur? I have no clue. And to be honest, a lot of guys are way smarter than me. They disagree on it. So I don't want to give you a definitive answer. But the why is very, very clear. What's the point of John's gospel? The fact that Jesus is God. Why did this event occur? At this clear statement of divinity, it happened to show bystanders and us who are reading this gospel, John's main point, and it's this, that this moment was a metaphor for who is in control of this arrest. And I'll give you an answer, it wasn't the guys on the ground. Who's the one in the control of the situation? It wasn't the guys that had been knocked back. Whether it be in shock or some divine force that had pushed them. Jesus was in control of his own arrest. That's why this detail exists. How did it occur? No clue. If you can figure it out, let me know. The why is very clear. Who is in control of this arrest? It's not the guys on the ground. It's the Christ. So look at verses 7 7 through 9. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Which, by the way... It, it just brushes over this detail of them getting knocked back. But that's okay. Again, that's not the main thing. It's the why. To so ask them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Ego a me, he says. I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. If you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Quote, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. It's very clear what Jesus is saying, okay? If you're after me, let my disciples go free. I didn't mean to rhyme, it just kind of came out that way, okay? If, it, if you're seeking me, if you want to arrest me, let my guys go. You're, this, you're not, your fight is not with them. Which makes us sort of paint a picture, okay? Maybe all of these guys were, to put it in modern terms, maybe Jesus and all of his disciples were being cuffed and read their rights, Right? Maybe they had him sitting on the curb, so to speak, and they were about to take them all down. I don't know what the, the situation was here, but Jesus, listen, just listen how amazing this is. 
How authoritatively Jesus must have spoken to take guys that were there to do their job and take in the offenders. And then Jesus says, don't even arrest them. Take me with you. And then they followed suit. The soldiers listened to him. The criminal. They let him go. This is a theme that we see echoed in the book of John. That Jesus protects his people. Brother James read in our call to worship. In fact, on the front of your bulletin. This passage, uh, some of it is, is in your bullet, on the front of your bulletin. John chapter 10. We know that's the good shepherd chapter of John. That the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It's a theme we see in the book of John. Really throughout the entire Bible. That God's people are his own and no one takes them from him. No one can pluck them from his hand. They belong to him and Jesus will not lose any of them. In his high priestly prayer and in the good shepherd narrative, we saw that he loses none that are his own. Now this is a physical display that we see here of that spiritual reality. That Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh. No, no one takes away mine. Because you're taking me instead. You don't lay your hands on my people because I'm not losing any of them. You're going to take me instead. This is a physical display of a far deeper spiritual reality. The disciples were going to be prisoners and perhaps going to be labeled as co-conspirators, sentenced to death with Jesus, I suppose. It seems that way. But the innocent Jesus instead was arrested and died so his disciples could be free and live. I'm going to say that again. The innocent Jesus was arrested and died so that his guilty with him disciples could be free and live. That should sound very, very familiar. Because that is your story. That's the gospel. Is that Jesus saw you, the guilty party, cuffed, captive, prisoner of sin, no hope, going to be dragged away to an eternal destiny apart from God. That was your punishment as a slave to sin captive, prisoner. And yet Jesus took the one that was in captivity, a prisoner that was sentenced to death, and he became the substitute. He became sin, who knew no sin. That in him, you who knew sin, could become righteousness. Jesus was arrested and died So that you, Christian, could be set free from the bondage of sin and be declared eternally alive. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what we see here in this passage. It's a physical display of a deep spiritual reality that is our own. Is that Jesus said, oh no you don't. You take me so that my people may be free. That's our story So how do we apply this? Jesus saves and your salvation is kept, which we've already been talking about throughout our service today. Christian, God has freed you from the captivity of sin. So my encouragement to you is this. Don't go back to your captor. Flee the thing that once enslaved you. Be convicted over sin, but be free from guilt. We can live this life guilt-free. Did you know that? 
You can live this life guilt-free. Now, I'm saying, not saying that you shouldn't be living in, in conviction when we do wrong. But the thing is this, my point is this, that there is no such thing as a person that has been liberated from sin by the grace of Jesus. There is no such thing as you, if that is your story, being in God's doghouse. There's no such thing as that. Because the answer to the, that problem is this. You have been made clean. Clean is clean. You can't get in God's doghouse because you can't murk up the waters that Jesus has permanently purified. And there's no one, you or anyone else, that can snatch you from His hand. And so hate sin, but love the God of grace. And one theme that's been on my mind, we talked about this in our college and career group Thursday night, and I just think that this is a, a pertinent thing, is that you know we call ourselves the bride of Christ, and there's a reason for that. It's because we have been covenanted to Jesus. We're bride of Christ because he is the groom. He's the bridegroom. Right? So we've been married with him. We are married to Jesus. You know, some of you guys do sometimes watch TV and movies or maybe you watch or read, you know, novels and things. If there was a television character who constantly cheated on their spouse, you would think of that person, man, that person is a real scumbag. What a loser. Man, I hope that that person gets what's coming to them. Especially if they constantly cheated on their spouse and they said to maybe a friend and said, oh, he's a, you know, he's always forgiving. He'll, he'll always welcome me back. He'll always forgive me. And they just persisted and kept on this streak of just being unfaithful and cheating and saying, ah, he's a real dummy. He always welcomes me back. You would loathe that character, wouldn't you? You would loathe them. Because they would be rightfully labeled a complete jerk. Because that's messed up. But here's the reality check. We're the bride of Christ. When we live in unrepentant sin, that's exactly what we do. Is we say, yeah, I'm going to continue to cheat on him. I'm going to cheat on my blood-bought spouse. Because I know he's going to be forgiving. I know he's always going to take me back because he's so gracious. And so I'm just going to continue to cheat on him and betray him and live in unrepentant sin. I'm not saying that you will be free from sin. What I'm saying is, if you're in Christ, you should hate so much that you have a constant temptation and tendency to cheat on your spouse. Because that's what sin is. It's unfaithfulness to the bridegroom. What does God want from you? He wants repentance. He wants contrition over wrongdoing. And you know what? The good news is that that's exactly right. He will always have you back. And what does that say about the grace of our Savior? just reaffirms the importance of preaching the gospel to ourselves we sang that song a minute ago just as i am i come broken and i was singing those words and just tears well up in my eyes because i think the more conscious you become of your own sin you shouldn't be able to say words like the ones that we just said and not be blown away by the grace of god faithful substitution second 
Two ways that Christ was at work in his own arrest. One, faithful substitution. Two, victory over the real enemy. Victory over the real enemy. Next, we kind of turn our attention to Peter. And I think in the example of Peter, we truly identify and can walk away with the helpful word of application. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I find it funny that, to my knowledge, John is the only gospel author who names both the culprit of this attack and the victim of this act of such a bizarre violence. Isn't this a weird thing that he points out? He's like, oh, by the way, the servant's name was Malchus. Shout out to that guy, the guy with one ear, right? Jesus healed the ear. We know that by looking at the other synoptic gospels. That word for sword is, is a unique word. It's not, you know, some sure that you, shoo. it's not like this. It's, it's a little, it's, it's a dagger. Maybe, I don't know how long, but maybe this big or so. And it wasn't meant, if you look at the literal word, it wasn't one with sharpened edges. It was one that was meant for stabbing, not for slicing. The reason I say that, I'm sorry to get into the graphic details, but Peter wasn't trying to slice this guy. He was trying to kill this guy, right? Why would you slice with something that, that had dull edges? He was taking a stab at this guy's head, most likely. Right? He was going for the kill blow on this guy, and he missed. He hit the guy's ear, right? Now, those details aren't really important to the purpose that John included this event. While those details are kind of interesting, the point was that Peter was standing in the way of Jesus' mission. That's the point. That Jesus, or Peter, was standing in the way of Jesus' mission. Now, Peter's bravery was not only in vain, but it was a denial of the work to which Jesus had just prepared himself while feverishly praying in the garden. Peter was an obstacle. He was standing in the way. He wasn't helping. He was harming. Jesus says, Peter, are you going to stand in the way of me drinking the cup that the Father has given me? Which is a kind of a strange uh, turn of phrase in their context and the immediacy of this people group. To drink the cup, it meant to embrace divine wrath of the Father. Peter, are you going to stand in the way of me drinking in the divine wrath that the Father has reserved for me? I say that to say that the agony of the cross was more than just a physical death. It was a weighty spiritual death. It was heavy. What I want you to see is that Peter doubtless had the right intention, but he was wrong. Why? Because he was waging war on the wrong enemy. He was waging war on the wrong enemy. To blame Jesus' death on the Romans who drove the nails or the Jews who, can, who chanted crucify him is a little short-sighted. Are those guys guilty? You better believe they are. But listen, folks, Jesus was killed not because of their actions only. Jesus was killed because of the sins of all of us. You're complicit. You murdered Jesus. I realize that's heavy. But that's reality. And that should hurt. That should hurt. That should feel heavy. We're culprits. We're complicit because of our sin. And I'm not making this up. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6. Listen very closely to this. But he, that's Jesus, prophecy, was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, listen, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who killed Jesus? Every sinner that has ever walked the face of this earth. Complicit. Peter's action of loyalty was actually one of self-interest. Now why do I bring this up? It's because Peter chose to wage a war on the material when Jesus was interested in waging war on the spiritual. What I mean by this is simply this. Jesus went to fight sin. Peter was focused on fighting a sinner. Your enemy is not sinners. Your enemy is sin. And your mission isn't to destroy all the evil in the world. It is to destroy the evil and the sin that resides right there in your heart. You're not assigned to go and conquer the evil in the world. You're assigned to conquer the evil in your heart. I think one thing that has led to the decay of many churches and the stagnancy of many Christians is that we have become so obsessed with winning a political war or winning a moral war or winning a get back to the good old days war or a social media war or a one-upmanship war where we just want to not let ourselves be put down and so we want to get the other guy. And in the meantime, we have let our guard down to the real enemy, the sin that encroaches not from the outside, but the sin that encroaches right on the inside. The temptation to exalt pride over humility when putting down another person. The temptation to be a parent or spouse in a sinful pride. Selfishness or pride not to confess wrongdoing or to manipulate someone else, your your spouse, to use their wrong for your own gain. Speaking from experience. The temptation to lack self-control toward something like overeating. Well, it's just, oh, there's so many other things. Lacking self-control towards substance abuse or your own speech or your own gossip. Your enemy is within. The temptation to forsake talking to someone about Christ in favor of avoiding a potentially awkward conversation or encounter where you'd be embarrassed for not having all the answers. That is the enemy within. That's sin. And when we do these things, we join Peter in failing to see The enemy that Christ devoted his life and the Father devoted eternity to defeating is not the Roman Empire and it's not people on the other side of the political spectrum and it's not the person at work that aggravates you. Jesus did not die to defeat that person. He died to defeat your sin. What's your main enemy? If Peter had aligned himself with Christ... He would have seen that Jesus was going to the cross to defeat the real enemy. Folks, your enemy isn't sinners. It's sin. And there is no human on earth that can damage your relationship with Christ. But you can do a tremendous job of that on your own. Let's wage war on the real enemy. Can you bow your heads and close your eyes for me, please? I just want to close with a twofold prayer. And I want, I want you to pray this prayer, okay? This is your prayer, and I think it's appropriate. 
It's very simple. It's a prayer of adopting Jesus' attitude, okay? Firstly, to adopt Jesus' attitude towards sinners. What was Jesus' attitude towards sinners? It was love. It was mercy. It was grace. Adopt Jesus' attitude towards sinners. And then secondly, to adopt Jesus' attitude towards sin. What was his attitude towards sin? Hated it. He wanted to defeat it. And yet, we can rest in Christ who has done that for us. Jesus was your substitute. He was arrested and he died so that you could be set free and live. And the prayer that you're praying, it may need to start there. That if you were to die today, have you asked Jesus to be that substitute? Have you ever admitted, Lord, I am so empty. I'm so broken. There's nothing in me that it can, it can achieve salvation. And believing in Christ who accomplished it for you. Today as we respond, pray the prayer that you feel led to pray. Father, Lord, you know the brokenness within. You know the emptiness of our hearts. Lord, while we fall so short, we read such a passage of tragedy, but we're reminded that Jesus, He accomplished great joy in this tragedy. So Father, help us, though we may be beaten up, though we may feel wicked because of our sin, that's appropriate. But we also know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Lord, you stood in our place. You became our substitute. And so today, as we take the Lord's Supper in a moment, as we respond now, I pray that our heart's song would not be grief, would not be misery, but that it would be joy. Because it's only through an understanding of the depth of our wretchedness that we can understand the depth of your majesty and grace. We love you, Lord. Work in us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.